I mean, health ailments that have been chronic disappeared in 14 days. People would say, this is miraculous. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just food. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from James Berry, who is a culinary expert, private chef to the stars, and the inventor of Pluck Seasoning. We're going to dive into why organ meats are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, and he'll share common mistakes when cooking, how to cook for picky kiddos, and how these simple changes can get you health results. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is James Berry. His 16 plus years in the culinary field started as a private chef. His inauguration into restaurant style cooking came later when he was a vegan vegetarian chef on the Van Warped Tour, which traveled to 50 North American cities in 60 days. Upon returning to Los Angeles, James continued to private chef, and he had the fortune of cooking for celebrities like Tom Cruise, Mariska Hagerty, George Clooney, Gerard Butler, Sean Puffy Combs, Barbara Streisand, and John Cusack. Not wanting to limit the audience of his healthy and tasty style of cooking, he started Wholesome To Go, a healthy, high-quality food delivery company that served under his leadership in the Los Angeles area for eight years. Most recently, James launched his first functional food product, Pluck, which we're going to talk about today, an organ-based all-purpose seasoning. It's the first of its kind, and it's an amazingly easy and delicious way for people to get organ meats into their diet. He also co-authored the recipes in Margaret Floyd's book, Eat Naked, and co-authored the follow-up cookbook, The Naked Foods Cookbook. He most recently co-authored the recipes in Dr. Alejandro Younger's book, Clean 7. You can follow James on Instagram and Facebook at EatPluck and get your nutrition in a pinch at EatPluck.com. So welcome to the show, James. Thank you so much for having me. You have quite the story. So tell (laughs) us more. So tell us what inspired you to become a chef. Well, you know, it started when I was seven and my mom, who is not a chef at all, I mean, she's constantly amazed that she has a chef for a son. She taught me how to scramble an egg and I just... I don't know. There was something about it that I just (laughs) fell in love with it. But what's so funny is that, so I'm in junior high, uh, I think it was around sixth grade, whatever age you are when you're in sixth grade, I think you're what, 11 or something like that. Uh, I don't don't even remember. (laughs) But so I'm in sixth grade and they're offering culinary arts class, you know, cooking class. And I immediately gravitated to it and I loved it so much. And I was never like an A plus student. I was, you know, kind of a B student. I I really loved more the social aspects of school than the scholarly. Culinary class though, I soared. And I, I loved it so much that my mom had to go to the school and ask them, especially if they would allow me to take it twice. So I took it during the day as a normal class, but then they offered it after school and I got to take it then as well. So I was unique in that way and I just loved it. And I I still, Merrily Dunn is the teacher's name. I still remember her. I thanked her in my first cookbook and I loved it. And I think I loved it because cooking for me was a, an expression of love. You know, I am a, I have a caretaker in me and I think I look at cooking as this is how I can show you I love you or care for you. Yeah. So it started at a very young young age. But what's so funny is that here I am in sixth grade and I'm like, oh, well, I can't become a chef because they have to work at nights and own restaurants. And I'm a family man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like 12 years old and I'm like, I'm a family man. You know, I don't know where that came from. But for some reason at that young age, I was convinced I cannot do this as a career. And so I just chose to do it as a hobby. And I just continued to learn as much as I could until 9-11 happened. And 9-11 happened. I was, at the time I was living in Los Angeles, I was an actor and I was working very hard at that and writing and trying to produce plays and just trying to just get my creativity out there as an actor as much as possible. And 9-11 happened and I just kind of audited my life. And I was like, you know, I love acting. I love it, but it doesn't feel like it's the end of the road. It doesn't feel like it's the thing I'm truly on this earth to do. And I was just looking at everything. And I was like, well, I really want to make sure I'm doing things. The only things in my life are the things that have heart. And I'm like, well, acting, I like creativity, but it just, it's not it. And I was like, well, but I love cooking. 
I'm like, maybe I should go to culinary school. And I, no joke. I mean, it was at that point, I then started looking into schools. I think a year I started raising money because it was really expensive. And I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And so I, a year later, I was in culinary school in New York. I picked this school because I knew I wanted to be a private chef. I didn't want to work at a restaurant. I knew I wanted to work one-on-one with people and to help them with their health. I was really intrigued with the idea of comfort foods that could be made healthy. Mm, Love that. Yeah. And so I came back from New York and um, this is kind of fun. It was the first time in my life where things just kind of clicked. You know, I put been putting 200% out in acting and maybe getting back 35%. But with cooking, I put out 100% and I got back 200%. I mean, people were coming to me and I have no idea how. It was really magical. Awesome. I love, I'm going to have to ask you later, when you say you made comfort food healthy, I'm going to have to ask you for some recipes. <laughs> I'm going to share some, <laughs> share some secrets with us. <laughs> well, I think, you know, COVID really shined a light on this, right? Yeah. Like we can talk health day in and day out. We, I mean, like all your listeners, I'm, you know, you, you lay out wonderful blueprints of how people can get healthy. But when, you know, the stuff hit the fan, what happened? Alcohol sales went up. Everything that's addictive mm-hmm. basically increased in mm-hmm. sales. And that's because we are emotional. And, we, and a lot of times our emotions are dictating our choices. And it's sad to me that, that, you know, the alcohol sales went up, that desserts and sugar items increased in sales. And like, I mean, I just remember seeing the bins. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I remember seeing the bins, the recycling bins, and they were no joke, overflowing with alcohol bottles, just overflowing. And it wasn't just like a couple houses. It was like all of them. And so what it showed me, or at least how I saw COVID was we can talk health all we want, but when it gets push a comes to shove. Yeah, push <laughs> comes to shove. We're going to go to what we know. And so that told me that the future of health is not necessarily in figuring out what the magic pill is. It's actually figuring out how we can take the tried and true health habits that already exist, like taking nature's gifts already that are already there and it, somehow making it so that we don't have to establish new habits around it. Because if we have new habits, it's going to be more challenging to achieve. Yeah, I think New Year's is a proof of that, right? Every New Year's, we make all these resolutions, but no joke, 80% of them are done by February. So they barely last a month. Sadly. Yeah, Yeah, right? So to me, if we can make health changes, but not require a new habit, then we've got something. And that's kind of now my goal. Well, I like that you help with the house. So we're going to have to talk about that. But first, I think as part of your story, I want to go back to some health challenges you have had. So do you mind sharing those and maybe how maybe how cooking helped? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think everyone in the social social fields and the health fields has a story of how, and it usually starts with, I got sick <laughs> yeah. or I, or some some kind of event happened that propels you into, okay, I need to get better. Oh, this is what worked. Now I want to share it with the world. Mm-hmm. And for me, I got a kidney stone and I've I was just out of college. Yeah. Oh, you had really from oh, pregnancy? Or, yeah. How, how no, did you get yours? Right before, right before I got pregnant, actually. I'll, I'll tell my story. Okay. Because okay, I want to hear yours. So I got a kidney stone right out of college and I was 3000 miles away from my family and home. I was doing this summer program and I had just arrived there about two weeks after college. And got a pain I'd never experienced before. And as you know, it's not as painful as probably having a child, I'm told, but it's probably the closest you can get. It's bad, and yeah. <laughs> it, it was terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying. And basically got to the hospital. They said, well, it's either an appendicitis or it's a kidney stone. And then, you know, I got my drugs to basically ease the pain and then it passed and we discovered it was a kidney stone. And the first thing I asked was to see it. When I saw it, they said, how did I get that? Like, what is that? And the doctor said, well, what have you been eating and drinking? And I was like, what? Like, what does that have to do with anything? He's like, well, tell me. I said, well, I was eating pizza every day and I was drinking root beer. He's like, well, were you drinking any water? I'm like, no. He's like, well, what you put in your body is going to affect it. And I was like, huh? (laughs) I mean, I was like, you know, I was 19 and I, I really did not connect that what I ate resulted in my health, like was going to have a direct correlation to my health. And from that day forward, I carry water around everywhere. Yep. That was truly the the pinnacle of starting to th- rethink like, oh, what am I choosing to put in my body? And it's really, I mean, you can attest to this, I'm sure. Like, it's alarming how many people still don't connect those dots and how many doctors do not connect those dots. Mm-hmm. It's scary. 
Most patients who come to see me have seen multiple other specialists, none of which have ever once asked what they're eating, including their gastroenterologist. So yeah, it's very sad. My kidney stone, well, short story here for the listeners, but my kidney stone, I don't think happened because I wasn't drinking plenty of water. I think I was drinking lots of water, but I was not supplementing with K2 and I was taking a lot of D3. I think that helped precipitate it. And I was taking a lot of N-acetylcysteine to help with fertility actually, but you can actually make cysteine like kidney stones. And long story short, I actually had to have surgery to remove my kidney stone and I never want to have that happen ever again. <laughs> but I also was on a rather high oxalate diet. I did a lot of smoothies and I, which I still am an advocate for in reason. I think everything needs to be done in moderation. I think I was eating way too many oxalates. So I needed to modify my diet, diet a bit there too. So that's the short end of my story, but it was extremely painful. And I wish- Were you putting- oh, um, Go ahead. Were you putting the raw spinach in your smoothies and all that stuff? Kale, love yeah. kale and spinach. Yep. And eating salads almost every day as well. So, yeah. So having the smoothies, having the salads every day, I was, yeah. But back to your story. (laughs) So obviously (laughs) you had this epiphany where, hey, I actually can go to culinary school and I can work in this industry and not have to be working, you know, late hours. I can be a private chef. So I'm sure the listeners want to know what it was like being a private chef to the stars. And I want to know if they eat healthy or not. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I kind of look at myself as a guinea pig because... One of the first things I realized when I arrived, so so as you mentioned, I, I specialized initially in vegan vegetarian food and I didn't necessarily do that because that was my diet. I did that because I wanted an edge. I knew that if I specialized in something, then I would set myself apart from other chefs. And, and also I was exploring what is healthy. I was, I, I didn't have an answer to that. And, you know, vegan vegetarianism, which is now what called plant-based, right? It's like they keep changing the terms, but the reality is, is back then that was seen as a healthier diet. And it probably still is to many people, but I was really exploring. Like I was like, what is health? Like, what does it mean? What is true health? Cause you're being, as you point out for your podcast, the trends are abundant, right? We're constantly being chattered about what is healthy but what is truly healthy? And I think that turned me in a bit of a guinea pig because I was I was needing to cook for clients that were into all the hottest trends. So when I first got out of school, it was the Fat Flush book. That was the big one, Fat Flush book. And so I had to quickly read that and, and understand how to cook for it because I was getting asked to cook Fat Flush food. And I was like, okay. But that's really, I think, my most prevalent comment I can make about celebrities is that amongst the community, they are passing around whatever the the newest trend in. And sometimes it's a trend that hasn't even hit the mainstream market, that it's a, it's kind of an internal trend. Um, I think that's how the um, that detox where you do lemon juice and maple syrup, you know. Like a gallbladder but, flush well, sort of thing? Yeah. But there was there's a special term, a name for it. And that actually started in some of those communities. But I, so I became a guinea pig basically and I just started trying everything and anything just to understand it, but not just in a cerebral way. Like I needed to understand how to cook for it and make the food interesting and make it feel like my clients were not being deprived. So I became bit of an expert in that. And to this day, if you have a MRT list that's, you know, crazy long, I can usually, in most cases, I can show you how to cook with it and not feel deprived, how to make it feel so that you're all the comfort from the foods that you can eat that you would hope for. So I'm mostly dairy-free and I say that and that I had been gluten-free for years and I had to go, I truly believe I had to go dairy-free in order to conceive my first child. I think that dairy was contributing to my endometriosis, whatnot. So I say I'm mostly dairy-free and that over the holidays, I had some dairy. I, I did have some pecan pie, which had some <laughs> had some butter in it. But other than someone's birthday, right, I'm not consuming dairy. So for I'm not vegan. I eat eggs. But for our listeners, like when you were cooking for those who were vegan, like can you give us a couple tips or tricks or that you use some pearls that we may not be aware of that were popular for you to use? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's interesting about and I'm curious if you found this with butter. There are so many people I've worked with that are off dairy, but yet they can do butter. It's a constant, you know, debate really about can people that need to be off dairy still do butter due to the high fat content? I mean, there's just so many, um, but do you find that even butter affects you? 
Yeah. So dairy doesn't affect me per se. Like I don't have gastrointestinal symptoms, whatnot, but I do believe it was triggering inflammation in my uterus, right? The endometriosis. So many of my patients for their conditions, regardless if they don't feel symptomatic eating the the butter, the dairy, I'm going to take them 100% off dairy for at least, I follow kind of what Terry Walls recommends also from Iowa, the 100% for 100 days. So at least three months, I do take patients entirely off all dairy any casein anyway, like entirely off. And then I let them introduce. And they're certainly introducing things like butter first before they would ever get to something like milk or have dairy in a baked good, at least before they would be. How stringent do you get around like ghee, for example, where the dairy has been removed? It depends on how sick the person is. (laughs) Um, But usually I do say ghee is allowed, the clarified butter. Yep. I mean, let's be honest. We we are... You know, I've been in this field for over 16 years, right? And where we are now in the world, the, the number of options are incredible, right? Like there's that dairy-free substitute that my wife, because she's dairy-free as well, that just loves is that, is it Miyagi? Miyagos? Miyoko's? Miyoko's. Love that Miyoko's brand. butter. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's a pretty clean butter, yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah. for a dairy-free butter, because that's the thing I always look at is what is in the ingredients. And back in the day when we were even younger, like margarine, for example, that is a scary concept because what they were doing was they were putting flavoring in margarine to recreate the butter experience, right? But all the ingredients that were in that margarine were really bad. I mean, like they were really, really bad for you. And I think you still see that in so many so-called health foods now. Like actually you see it a lot in the Impossible Burgers and all those kind of things is they're trying to sell you on this idea that this is better for you. But if you just read the ingredient list, it's scary. It's, it's this not. Long, yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It's not recognizable. The question always, I always ask is, was this, is this something found in nature or is it not? And if it's not, does that mean my body's not going to be able to assimilate it and understand it? And usually that answer is it won't. My husband and I talk about this a lot because he, <laughs> he is not free of really any foods. He eats whatever he feels like, but <laughs> he has problems with a lot of these alternatives because he feels like their ingredient list is two paragraphs long and has things that aren't from nature. Whereas butter, like organic butter or, or ghee, he's saying, this has got to be healthier than some of these you know, alternatives. So you have to find the clean alternatives. I mean, you you really do. We live in a, in an age where they exist. You know, I mean, there's even there is even like a non dairy. Most of the non dairy based ice creams, for example, are not good. I mean, if you once again read the ingredient list, they really aren't good. However, I've recently seen some brands that when you read the list, there's like four ingredients, five ingredients. You're like, oh, finally, someone's doing it. Like. And I can't even tell, I don't even remember the name of the brand, but if you just read the ingredients, you immediately can kind of dial in, is this going to be good for me or not? Or is this going to be a good substitute for the real, the full dairy one? But in terms of some tricks, like, so here's one that it has nothing to do with dairy, because I really do think there are some great non-dairy options nowadays, right? I think Nut Paws, for example, is a good yeah. good option, and, and she's a that's a wonderful company in terms of their mission. But here's a here's a tip that a lot of people don't realize. So a lot of times you're getting your MRT back, and it says you know like you can't do lemons, for example, and everyone's like, oh, what do you you know if I can't do lemons, it's sometimes you can't do limes. Well, sumac is a spice. It's a Mediterranean spice. And sumac, it's not a mixed spice. It's an actual spice. It's a seed spice that has a lemony taste to it. So that's just one example of like, if you can't do lemons. It's a hack, yeah. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) hack of like, just use sumac. And there's tons of stuff like that. Like some of the stuff is now popularized, but I was doing this stuff a long time ago. What like the use of cauliflower for grains and for thickeners. When I make curry sauce, for example, I thicken it with cauliflower. So I add, I'm making the curry and I use whole cauliflower florets and I just let them simmer in the sauce and soften and then I blend it and it just naturally thickens the sauce. So that's a good hack if you can't use coconut, for example. Yes, that's frustrating when that comes back on a patient's food sensitivity test. Can't have coconut. I know that can be really frustrating. Speaking of cauliflower, I have another question for you. So we will come back to our agenda here for, <laughs> but for a moment, we were gifted an air fryer 
Yeah. From some from Very our in-laws. Popular now. Yes. And I love chopping up cauliflower and broccoli and tossing out that in and in, in an oil. So I guess I would ask what oil would you recommend to be used in the air fryer? And is the air fryer healthy? I mean, is that okay or what's I mean, food tastes delicious. Is that something we should be using or what is that? Well, it depends on what your food? definition <laughs> Yeah, it depends on what your definition of health is. So if people say that they could be saying, Well, is it healthy to fry food? Right. And of course, it's not. It's not healthy to fry food in, in, in any clean oil. It's still not healthy because sure. just the act of frying the food, deep frying it is going to make it unhealthy. It's it's going to change the molecular qualities of the food. And, and so it's not going to be as healthier. Now, that's the kind of cerebral terms. Right. But does fried food taste good for the soul and like emotionally? Heck, yeah. <laughs> right. People like there's. There's nothing better than something like that, particularly if you grew up eating that, right? So in that sense, a air fryer is miraculous because you're not having to deep fry it. It's going to be healthier just in general, right. right? Now, the thing with like the pressure cookers and the deep fryers, I think ultimately the technology is really great. I think it, it makes things that used to be a little bit more complicated and or unhealthy healthier in the case of air fryers. But the question becomes like, well, I guess it's really a, a thing of preference and then of time. Because sometimes people mistake and they think these things are going to make it faster to cook. It doesn't necessarily do that. Like if you were making rice in a pot, for example, versus let's say a pressure cooker, right? It takes 15 minutes for the pressure cooker to pressurize, right? Right. So right. that 15 minutes... And then you could have yeah, just I mean, cooked the rice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and then it takes 10 minutes for it to cook. So that's 25 minutes. And you could have easily done that in a pot. And and then this the same kind of similar concept you can add to air fryers is are you now eating all of your food in the air fryer? Is it all that same texture? Does that mean it's unhealthy? Not necessarily, but you are like what kind of oil are you using? Because you still have to use some oil in the air fryer, right. right? So what kind of oil are you using to your point? And I technically, if I ever fry anything or even coat something to bake, I really stick to, I think it's about five oils or five fats. So I do lard, I do ghee, I do tallow, I do duck fat. Duck fat is amazing on potatoes. Amazing duck fat. It's almost like duck fat was meant to be used with potatoes. When you taste it, it's like they just go so well together. But so duck fat and then um, coconut oil. That's really it. Anything else. And I, you know, it's questionable, you know, vegetable oils, it's inflammation. I mean, and a lot of these oils are highly processed with chemicals you don't want in your body. So I used to try to keep it to those kind of solid at room temperature fats. And then the issue becomes, well, I don't know if you're always eating like that. That's where the debate is, right? Should, I mean, I think it's great to get saturated fat. I'm very pro-fat, but you can have too much fat. You know, when I'm like during my kicks of trying to kind of lose weight, I mean, I eat so, like right now I'm doing a carnivore diet and I'm just kind of experimenting. Are you really? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm 24 days in, or actually 25 today. And it's it's just an experiment. I'm doing it for three months to try. And um, Are you checking labs before and after? I should have. I know. I didn't do it before. I wish I had, but I am going to do it during. And I have some labs from about a year ago that I could compare it to, Yeah. Um, but I didn't do it right before. But point is, like, even on a diet like this, it's so restricted to just animal products. I'm not eating anything else outside of it. And I still have to be mindful of fat. I have to be mindful of fat in terms of making sure I get enough, but also make sure I don't get too much because... Right. Uh, it can negatively affect your health. So I, I think that goes for any any cooking method. And, and then lastly, we never want to forget aesthetics when cooking. So flavor is key. Flavor is king, right? You always want it to taste good. But aesthetics are important too. We can get tired of, like, I think anyone grew up having boiled vegetables can attest to this. Like, it affects how they look at vegetables as an adult, right? It affects, like, Oh, I don't like Brussels sprouts. I hear that all the time. I don't like Brussels sprouts. Well, how how were they cooked when you were a kid? Oh, they were boiled and it was lime green and it was disgusting. I said, well, have you tried them roasted? No. Well, maybe you'd like them. You know what I mean? Like, so sometimes mm -hmm. when we fall into just this, the same aesthetic of the food, the same style of cooking, it can sometimes get boring. And then I, I think it yeah. kind of puts food sometimes at a flat line. 
Agreed. So I like to mix it up. I just like to mix things so up. So I can use my air fryer with the appropriate fat occasionally, <laughs> just not every day. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Unless you're, I mean, you know, unless you're on a kick where you're just like, you're loving it. Not going to lie. Yeah. When we started using it, we used it like every day for a week, but then we got off. that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really important to not underestimate energy with food. The energy of the intention of when you're making it, but also like if you're loving something, there is plenty of data to show that actually you're digesting it better when you're you're kind of feeling good about it or positive towards the that what you're eating. It could be even something that's not good for you. But if you're eating it and your mind and your energy is clean about like, oh, this is I can't wait to eat this and it's positive, there is plenty of data that will show you that actually your body assimilates it differently than if you were sitting there tight and stressed out about it. Like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this and I'm hiding, you know, and like shame is filled, you know, with you eating. (laughs) So there's lots of data around that. And I, you know, what is that movie? Like Water for Chocolate? Like I think where they talk about the energy you put into the food you make. I'm, I'm a full believer of that. Love that. So let's go on to some common mistakes that you've seen in your years working as a chef. So what are some common mistakes that you've you've seen? This is going to be a tough one for people, um, but it's the number one thing I've seen. And that's self-assessment. I think particularly with, you know, Mr. Google and this, the ability to have so much information at our fingertips, I constantly see people self-assessing and thinking they know why they can't do something. Like I know someone from my childhood that self-assessed. And so she hasn't eaten, I think, eggs and a bunch of other stuff. And this has been now like 30 years. And I hear stuff like that. And I'm like, huh, but you don't actually know why you're not eating this stuff. She said, no, I just, I just know I feel better. I'm like, okay, but did you actually heal anything in the process of removing it? Mm-hmm. And she has no clue because she never actually did the test. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love, you know, the work of practitioners that are not just removing things, but they're also focused on the healing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always try to tell the, the self-assessors, I'm like, you know, most health protocols are three to six months mm-hmm. and you've been doing this for 30 years. Like you could be limiting so much of your diet for really no reason. You don't even know. And once again, I just go back to t- life is short. If you don't have to limit something, why should you? But if you have to, then let's figure out how to do it. Agreed. Um, so self-assessment, I would say is the number one thing. And then the second would be this idea that we have to be good at cooking. I think there's this concept that because we need to eat, we expect that we're all supposed to love cooking and that we're supposed to be good at it and we're supposed to want to do it. And just in my time as a chef, it's just not true. Most people, for most people, the majority of people, they do not enjoy cooking. It's it's fuel to eat and they want to have nothing to it, but they put a lot of pressure on themselves. And I'll be the first person to say that there's no pressure needed. Like a lot of times we think that we have to be good at it. We think that we need to be creative in the kitchen, but you really don't. Like I don't look at things as recipes. I look at things as formulas. When I think about what is for dinner tonight, I I literally think of it as a formula and it really has a few components. It has protein Mm -hmm. of your choice. It has vegetables of your choice. And then it has fat. And then sometimes it has a starch or something like that, right? But that's it. And so everything else kind of is about the formula of like, well, how do I want to put it all together? Do I want to just stir fry it? Do I want to roast it? It's not necessarily about like the measurements of things. It's more just about making sure the plate kind of fits that profile of this formula. I usually, I mean, right now I'm on the carnivore diet, so my plate is all animal, but Usually my plate would look like, you know, 60, 70% vegetable, mm-hmm. 10, 15% protein, and then, or maybe 20% protein. And then I guess another 10%, five to 10% of between the fat, the starch or something like that, if I'm even doing that, but it's usually mostly vegetables. And I find that works really well, but now I'm exploring new ways of doing that. So, you know, who knows? It's, <laughs> it's always interesting to see what works. Well, I agree with that. Yeah. Those are two mistakes. I really, the pressure we put on ourselves and then also thinking we have to figure it out on our own and not going to someone that's a professional. I fully admit I am not talented in the kitchen, but I can make a sheet pan of vegetables and put it in the oven, right? I can make my protein so I can, I can do what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, one of the best ways I've found that really moves the needle in terms of health is meal planning. Mm, I, yes, agree. And and agree. that's kind of part of what we're talking about here. So a lot of people 
think meal planning is so hard. And I'm like, well, no, it doesn't have to be. Like you could simply just get a subscription to a culinary magazine, Bon Appetit, whatever. And then you get that once a month and then just go through that and do the recipes in that. Let that be your meal plan. Or you could simply, you know, subscribe to any of the thousands of meal plans out there that are available either for free or at a very low price, but you don't have to put pressure on yourself to figure it out. But what I love about meal planning, it really helps you stay on target in terms of what your your health goals are, because you create a grocery list and you don't diverge from that. And then hopefully it also helps support ease that there's no decision fatigue of like, oh, what are we going to eat tonight, right? So you already know what you're going to eat. You've hopefully already prepared for it. And you've also managed your week so that maybe you did a slow cooking meal or pressure cooking meal on the day that you knew you were going to be really busy. You know, so you started that in the morning, things like that. So you can really budget the time of your week based on how crazy it is with your meal planning. And then lastly, it saves you money in a sense. Like you're not like stuck eating out all the time. You're not buying things that are, are going to go to waste. Like so meal mm-hmm. planning really supports like you have le- less waste when you meal plan. At least I hope you're you less do. likely to diverge, you know, and, and give in and eat unhealthy like eat out. I totally agree. My husband and I on Sundays, we meal prep, meal plan. Like that's what we do. Decide what we're having for dinners. And then I usually make salads for the week for lunch, at least at work. So just fewer oxalates now, but still <laughs> I'm a meal, meal prepping that. I think that's very helpful. You have to set aside that time on your weekend or whenever that is for you. But that's that's what we do. One thing we also do is we do leftover lunches. So we always cook more of our dinner than we need. And we, and we use the next day's lunch is the leftovers. And we just, we change it up. So let's just say dinner was roast chicken. Well, for lunch, it might be as as chicken salad, or it might be a tortilla, you know, like a Siete Foods tortilla wrapped with the chicken and vegetables. You know what I mean? It's like, you can change it up. You don't have to feel like you're always eating the same thing. Creating less work in the kitchen is always going to be to everyone's advantage than creating more work. Agreed. So a lot of my listeners are females and what tips would you have to them uh, who are coming to see me, right, <laughs> as a patient? And I'm recommending some diet changes and they go back home and their partner maybe is not on the same page. It's frustrating that because that is definitely a theme I've seen. Uh, this is just, of course, my perspective. I can't speak for every male out there. I don't know every male, of course. But in my time, my 16 plus years, I, I have noticed that theme that a lot of the drivers of health in a family or in, in a couple is the female. Mm-hmm. And typically... I can think of like a handful, like typically it's the male of that relationship or of that family that's kind of poo-pooing the idea or, or, or resisting it. It's frustrating to me because if anything, what's the other statistics? The other statistics are that men die earlier than women. So if anything, we should be on board with you know, yes. our health just as much as a woman should be, right? I mean, so there's really no good reason why we should be undermining an effort to get healthier from anyone in my observation that I think a lot of times it is connected to a few things. It's connected to fear, you know, fear of change, fear of like, oh, what if what I am doing is negatively affect my health? So what's going to happen if I have to stop that? And so that could be something as simple as the enjoyment of going out for a beer for many men or something like that, whatever it is, right? Whatever that ritual is that men have, whether it's connecting with other men, maybe connecting with their child, maybe it's even connecting with their spouse, right? That they might have to lose that way of connecting. The other way is sort of what I just mentioned, which is I think in the cases I'm thinking of, the fathers were using these unhealthy tools, whether it's getting desserts or things like that, to connect with their kids. The idea of losing that, that maybe they didn't know how to relate to the kids, I don't know. But I have observed that a lot over the years yeah. and, and it's concerning to me. And what I always think about is, and, and in the few women I have counseled through this, I'm always trying to give the male perspective, okay, first of all, the male is wrong. If the male in your life is saying that I don't believe, exactly what you and I said earlier, if, I don't, they, if they don't believe that food affects their health, they are wrong. And you just need to know that they are wrong. I'm not telling you that they, you have to shame them around that. You just need to know on a certain level, they are wrong. Food does affect our health. It's the first thing you should always look at. Just having the confidence to know, okay, they are wrong. And it's not my job to make them know that they're wrong, but it is my job to take care of myself. And so how can you best do that? 
I always try to kind of mirror back to women, their strength. Women, I, I truly believe this, women are what make the world go round. Women are strong, innately strong. I believe that's why women have, they have the constitution, they, have, they are able to have babies because whatever created us knew that women could handle it. I know that as a male, I typically look to the females in my life to help not just ground me, but kind of help tell me what is needed in a situation. In many ways, a lot of women are sometimes made to believe that they don't have that power in a relationship. And so I'm just here to say that I, th I think you do. If you need to kind of do really primal things to get back that power, then do it. And one of those primal things might be like, don't give sex to your partner until they you know, observe what you want them to do. Because many men are driven by sex, right? We're very physical creatures, right? And so right away, if you want a man to change his ways, then stop giving him the stimulus that he's wanting, right? So give him give him something different until you get what you need. But, you know, that's a very simplistic thing I'm saying. I know that that can be hard, but I'm more just trying to support women in knowing that not only are you not crazy, you are correct, that food matters. And two, you have more power in the relationship than you realize. And so I'm, I'm just trying to mirror back to you to explore the different power dynamics and how you can not shame your, your partner, but kind of support them and saying, okay, you may not believe this, but give me two weeks. Just, just give us two weeks. Let's do this for two weeks and then we'll reevaluate, but commit to it for two weeks and let's see what happens because a lot can happen in two weeks. I mean, mm -hmm. We used to do this thing called a sugar control detox. And it was 14 day sugar control detox. We would cut out anything that was actual sugar. We cut out alcohol. We cut out things that converted into sugar in the body quickly, like pastas and starches. And so you were mostly just eating protein, vegetables, and fat, right? But in 14 days, people not only lost weight, but they also changed their palate. And they lost, I mean, health elements that have been chronic disappeared in 14 days. I used to run this program in my meal delivery service in Los Angeles. People would say, this is miraculous. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just food. It's just food. But convince your partner, give me 14 days. And if things don't feel different, then we can reevaluate. But if they do, I'm going to ask you then to re-up another two, two days or to, uh, two weeks, you know what I mean? But take it one step at a time with them because it's usually just based around fear and, mm -hmm. and they just need some support. They need some hand-holding with that, whether they know it or not. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think women make the world go around. So well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for giving a shout out to all the females. But you're right. And they're, they're doing the grocery shopping, usually for the family. And this is where kids come in. So what are some lessons learned when cooking for picky eating children? Oh, yeah. So I have two girls myself, but I've been doing this now for a while um, with other families. And I found there's a few things that really move the needle. And one is include the kids or the picky eater in the process as much as possible. So that means grocery shopping, the cooking. That means the tasting along the way. What does a bell pepper taste when it's not cooked? What does it taste like when it's cooked? What does it taste like when it's roasted? What does it taste like when it's fried? You know, what, you know change it up. Let them explore it because a lot of times picky eating is really just, and I was a picky eater, absolutely. And I still am to a certain degree, but it's usually based around, once again, fear. It's lack of control. So something's going on, something that's going on in my life. I'm overwhelmed by it. So I need to get some kind of control. What can I control? I can control what goes in my mouth. And I've found that a lot of times when parents are having like a tumultuous relationship, how do the kids react? They react with picky eating. It, they're, they're a lot of times connected. But so first off, connect them to what you're doing. Let them participate. Give them that control again. Give them the control of like, here, why don't you pick the vegetable for tonight's dinner? And you can pick from this area, whatever you want. You know, give them choices that you're going to be okay with them making. You know what I'm saying? So set them up for success, not failure. That's one thing. The second thing is only bring into the home what you want them to eat. And I know that seems like very simple, but how many times as a practitioner, how many times in my career have I heard a parent say, I just don't understand why my kid is addicted to Cheerios. It's like, well, quit buying them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like Cheerios don't grow on trees. They're not picking them as flowers. You're bringing them into the home. You're the one that introduced them or someone in your life did, and you contributed to it by continuing to buy them. And so that's the first rule is like set the standard that you want. You are the one in control. 
So set the standard that you want. Don't bring it into your home. And I speak as someone who, if it's in my home, I will eat it. Like we have to know our limitations. I have learned that I do not have self-control around mostly like ice creams and certain chips and certain foods. I can either bring it to the home and then fight myself and beat myself up and like, oh, oh, and struggle, you know, or, or I can just not bring it home and then I don't have to struggle. Choose the simplest path. Don't choose the path that's hard and stressful and that's going to keep you in your head and and keep you kind of in that pull tug, pull tug. Like the simplest path is don't bring it in your home. And then you could say, well, well, what about when I do want to eat something? Well, here's the tip to when you do want to eat something that's not an everyday, you know, something that's a treat. You simply go out, you buy it, no matter what size it is. It could be a single serving, it could be a, a family size, whatever it is. You buy it, you eat the amount you want, and then you throw the rest away. You do not bring it home. And you can say, well, that's a waste of money. It's like, well, it was already a waste of money. Hmm. The minute you're buying something that's not for your health, it is a waste of money. It's it's extraneous. It's not needed. You're not buying it to survive. Right. You're buying it because it's a you're you're addicted to whatever it gives you. You're you're right. It's a comfort thing. It's a pleasure point. So it's it's already an unnecessary item. So don't bring it into the home. And then the third thing once again, give the kids the option. So this is a really cool trick. Instead of like plating the meal for your family, what you do is you have like, you know, a separate table or an island in your kitchen and you put all the food there and you only, don't cook multiple meals. I guess that's another tip, but this is part of this. Don't cook three different proteins and one that's dino shaped for the kids and one that's, you know, for the adults. It's like one for everybody. But then when it comes to the vegetables, have something that you can always pull out. So for our home, it's cultured vegetables. We always have cultured vegetables in our refrigerator because they don't go bad. You can just kind of keep it in the back of the fridge and it doesn't matter if someone eats it every day, it will not go bad. That's just the nature of cultured vegetables, right? But if you have it in there, what we do is every time we cook, we put whatever vegetable we did make, whether it's a salad, it could be chard, it could be broccoli, doesn't matter. Whatever we made, we put that out in a bowl and then we, we put the culture vegetables out. And then we tell the kids, you choose, give them the control. You pick what you want from this meal, but you have to choose one of those vegetables. You get to choose. And because we have this mainstay of the culture vegetable, it's very safe. It's like, they know what it tastes like. They know what it looks like. They know what they're going to get from it. And so if the other vegetable seems unsafe to them or just kind of new and they just aren't feeling like they want to do that, they always have a safe a safe zone. It's really, it's always fascinating. Sometimes they go for the cultured veg option and a lot of times they don't. The times you think, oh, they're going to want this vegetable versus the cultured veg, they don't. They actually go for the cultured veg. You know, I can never predict what they're going to do. I find though, by giving them that option, they eat their food. And by doing it that way too, is by leaving it on the island and basically advising them to take the food themselves, you're not only giving them the power but you're also encouraging them to not food waste. So you're basically saying, only put on the plate what you're going to eat, right? And that's one thing that as parents, we all can relate to is that shaming of like, you need to finish everything that's on your plate, but we're the ones that serve them in those circumstances, right? We're pushing these foods. And so instead of like having a a nice relaxing meal, you end up having a very stressful meal. Mm -hmm. But by letting the kid choose what they put on their plate, it's their portion sizes, but you've, it's a win-win for you. So they're choosing what portions and you've chosen the food options. They're never getting away with anything. They're never like, oh, but they didn't have a vegetable. No, because the deal in your house is they get, you, they get to choose which one, but they have to choose one. Right. They're always eating food that you want them to. They get the power and then they have to finish the plate from the food that they ate. So they're being taught to not or that they chose. So they're being taught to not waste food, to respect the process of food from the growing to the buying, to the, to the sourcing, all everything. I think it's a win-win when you include children in those ways. You've probably heard a lot about fish oil. It's one of the most common supplements available after all. But have you wondered if you should be taking it and why you might want to think about it? The simple answer is yes. If you don't have access to fresh fish several times per week, you can likely benefit from supplementation and may even need to. I test many of my patients' fatty acid levels and have found that the overwhelming majority of my patients are low in omega-3s. Omega-3 fatty acids are essential cornerstones of human nutrition. They are deemed essential because we need them for proper health, much like certain vitamins and minerals, but unfortunately we can't produce them on our own. 
As a result, our only option is to consume these fats either through our diet or through supplementation. Omega-3 fatty acids are known to benefit cardiovascular health, support healthy brain function and cognition, and have been proven to maintain a healthy inflammatory response. For all these reasons, achieving the proper balance of omega-3s is an important health strategy, one for which most people require supplementation. Simplified. Fish oil can help improve your cholesterol, glucose, help your memory, reduce pain, even headaches and menstrual cramps. I typically start my patients with 1 to 2 grams or 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams per day of combined eicosapentaenoic acid, which is EPA, and docosahexaenoic acid, which is DHA daily. Our Your Longevity Blueprint Omegas are stabilized in vitamin E oil, and rosemary extract is used to ensure maximum purity and freshness. This exclusive fish oil is purified, vacuum distilled, and independently tested to ensure heavy metals, pesticides, and polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, are removed to undetectable levels. Plus, our fish oil has the shortest sea-to-shelf time, meaning from fish to bottle or capsule, of only 3 to 6 months, as compared to the industry average of 18 to 36 months. Seriously, that means most of the fish oil you buy over-the-counter is old, oxidized, rancid, and not helpful. That fish oil purchased over-the-counter could be three years old already before you ingest it. Yuck. With over 10,000 published studies in the last three decades, EPA and DHA from fish oil are among the most researched natural ingredients available and have a long history of safety and efficacy. Check out more product information on our website, yourlongevityblueprint.com, and use code OMEGA3s for 10% off. Now let's get back to the show. I love that. At the time of this recording, I have an only two-year-old, but I'm kind of doing that right now and that I'm offering him, if he's not going to eat the vegetable that we prepared, we usually have carrots. We just always have carrots in the fridge. So I'm always saying, would you rather have carrots? Right. So I'm, I have another substitute that's still a vegetable. He gets to pick one. And I, I think all of your tips are going to be very helpful as he ages. So <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to another thing, which is palate. I think as you'll find, and you've probably already seen, is, is any parent with a kid will will recognize that one week the kid only wants green things, the next week they only yeah. want white things. You right. know, another week they only want red things. One one week they love carrots, the next week they don't want to have anything to do with them. And so right. I think palates are, I look at palates, it's like breathing creatures that we have to never assume that because you didn't like something one week that you're not, or at one age that you're not going to like it ever again. So as a parent to constantly be putting things in front of kids, even when you think they didn't like it last month, why would I do it again? Like, don't ever assume, just keep putting stuff in front. And then also kind of what we talked about earlier, which is try different things. Like, so let's say right now you might be putting out raw carrots. I don't, well, I guess if they're two, maybe you're cooking them slightly. I don't know, but try doing it different ways. Like, so sometimes grate the carrot, sometimes cook it, sometimes um, roast it because caramelizing carrots is going to bring out the sweetness in them. Right. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's lots, sometimes you should, you could even coat it with some kind of cheese or something, you know, like, or fat, like, cause if you stick to kind of that dry texture, then the kid's always going to expect things to look like that. Like how many kids love sauces, right? But my kids love sauces because from day one, everything has had a sauce. Hmm. So Lucky it's all <laughs> it's all what we you know it's all what we acclimated them to is we are driving the truck. We are the ones driving it, and never forget that you're the one in the driver's seat. So it never has to be what they think they want. You can dictate it, but just give them choice within it. I love that. I've always been a dipper. I love sauces. But again, I fully admitted to not being highly talented in the kitchen. So when it comes to even sauces or seasonings, I feel like that's my weakness. And that's part of what you've created. You're the inventor of pluck seasoning. So tell us what inspired you to create that seasoning and tell us what it's all about. We want to know how we can use it, of course, as well. So yeah. So tell yeah, us. Yeah. No, thank you. So organs are, to me, nature's superfood, animal organs. I, I just feel like nature delivered this amazing source of nutrients. I mean, organs, like if we just focus on bovine organs, cow organs, vitamin A, B, C, D, E, and K, right? All the vitamins, <laughs> essential minerals, iron, calcium, copper, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, zinc. I mean, everything like if you're trying to get pregnant, it's all in the organs. You know what I mean? It's like you need a prenatal pill, just eat organs. <laughs> it's all there. And technically we used to, as a society, we used to, our great grandparents did in, in generations before that, they ate organs, but for whatever reason, we've lost the taste for them. We've lost the cooking knowledge. And so nature's superfood is getting lost on us. And it's sad to me because 35% of the world is nutrient deficient. 
that's only the people they've measured, right? And yet we know in the US it's not because it's a food problem. It's not because we're not getting enough calories because we have an obesity issue in the US, right? So to me, it's like quality. It's all about quality. So here is nature providing you with this incredibly nutrient-dense product. And what's also super cool about it is that organs, the nutrient in organs, it's a whole food. It's a real food. And so our bodies recognize it and can assimilate the vitamins and minerals of it versus like fortified packaged foods in the store. Most of those vitamins get washed out of our body or not utilized because our bodies don't know what to do with them because they're not whole. They're not, they're synthetic. To me, that was, that's the gift nature's giving. But the, the issue is like people aren't eating it. And that's when I started to really think about, well, how can I get nutrients in my kids without it being a fight? How can I help people with their health where they don't have to adopt a new habit like we talked about earlier? And I was looking at the way collagen was being used in so many things. And I was already experimenting with like collagen and nut butters and things like that. And then it hit me like, well, wait, nature's superfood is not even being used. And I feel like there's got to be a way to incorporate that. Oh, well, freeze drying organs nowadays, which is something that's prevalently done in the supplement industry, that's all shelf stable. So they're freeze drying and powdering organs and it's shelf stable. So all I need to do, I need to complement or offset the flavor that people make the icky face with when they eat them. I got to somehow complement and offset that flavor. Well, when I make pâtés, what I use is I use like onion, I caramelize onions and I use different spices and herbs. So I was like, well, what if I did that with spices? And so that's how Pluck was created is I thought, well, I want to get this nutrient density in people's diets, but I also want to offset the taste. And so I do that with the complementary herbs and spices. And so basically, and I know you haven't tried Pluck yet, but when, when I get you a sample, I think you'll find this to be true. The feedback we get is that A, does not taste like organ meat and B, it's easy. Like you, you don't have to know how to cook. You can put it in the recipe or you can just finish the product with it, just like you would salt. And it goes with anything, popcorn, eggs, fish, chicken, doesn't matter that it's, it's cow organs. Like it just goes with everything. And it's, and I didn't know that when I created it. I mean, I'm constantly discovering this, but it really does. It goes with everything. And so it's kind of a win-win it's easy to use. And you're basically adding nutrients to everything you put it on nutrients that you weren't getting before. So it's basically freeze-dried organ meats from cow, you're saying, right? Yeah. But there are also seasonings in there to make it taste better. Yeah. So organs have this umami. Are you familiar with the umami? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those that are not familiar, so umami is what they call the fifth flavor, the fifth taste. So we have sweet, sour, bitter, Salty. Wait, salty, right? So umami is the fifth. And what umami does, they're, they're all unique, but what umami does is actually make all the other flavors taste better. It heightens everything. And the way you see that play out in packaged foods in the grocery store is that you'll, you'll see a lot of packaged foods have natural flavors added to them. And usually what's hiding in those natural flavors is MSG. And MSG mm -hmm. is the industry's synthetic way of adding umami to whatever you know the, the packaged good to make it taste better, but technically it's not good for you in that form. But organ meats, it's natural. It's totally a natural part of the organ meat. So, so what pluck tastes like is it has an umami focus. So when you put it on something and an umami, the best way to describe umami is savory. It's got a savory taste to it. And I put like powder, I put a uh, smoked paprika in there too. So it's got a little bit of a smoky thing, but it's kind of an all purpose seasoning. So it doesn't taste that different from most all purpose seasonings, but I've included five organs in it. I've included liver, kidney, heart, spleen, and pancreas. And so you're not just getting one organ, you're getting five. And there's this, there's this concept of like supports like, and that's why I did all five. And the idea is it's an ancestral kind of Native American thought, but it's, it's if I eat animal organs, then they're going to support my own organs. And if I'm eating those five, then I'm going to be supporting those five organs in me. And each organ has its its own identity. You know, like, like there's certain heme iron and liver is not found in other things. You know, there's the enzymes and the pancreas that aren't found in the other organs. So they each contribute in a way that's going to give you even more of a full-fledged, you know, nutritional profile from them. So that's why I'm trying to get as many, much variety. It's all about variety in my opinion. Are there any contraindications? Like, is there garlic in your seasoning? If someone has, it's like not. Yeah, mine's not. It's not AIP, but we're actually like I'm working on an AIP version right now. Actually, I, I'm like literally weeks away from debuting it. Exciting. So, 
Yeah. So we, our goal is to make it more accessible for people that are, have certain sensitivities. I just kind of wanted to launch though with a, yeah, yeah. you know, with a kind of a general standard since sadly, I mean, and I, I don't mean to offend anyone, but like, you know, the AIP community, while I completely support and respect them when you're trying to sell a product, it's a small community. And I mean, you have and to- And that's tr- the autoimmune paleo for those listening, AIP yeah. community. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the, you know, that now they can do garlic, but they can't do seeds. But just to your point, like that, I will be creating product that can serve a lot of different palates and a lot of different health needs. So how, how liberally can it be used? Is there, does it contain salt at all? Or is it just seasoning? It has salt. So we advise you just to use it like you would salt and pepper. I mean, in in many cases, you don't even need to add more salt. Sometimes I do, because I didn't, I purposely didn't add too much salt because I just, I was aware that everyone's kind of got their own palate around salt, you know, depending on your adrenals and whatnot. So you're going to have different needs around salt. So I didn't want to do it too salty. So right. it doesn't have as much salt as most products, but it has enough where you you could get by with just using pluck. We've heard from families that kids love it. Like I haven't met a kid yet that doesn't, to be honest with you. It's, it's really intriguing. I think kids are really in tune with their bodies. And I think when they taste it, because it does taste good, that they immediately know what their body needs. And I think they're getting nutrients that they previously weren't. So I think there's kind of this quality of like wanting more of it. Like I just, I hear kids like actually sticking their fingers into the jar and eating (laughs) it, things like that. Very exciting. Well, I have to ask you, you have obviously quite the experience and you've given us several tips today and I'm excited to use your pluck seasoning. Tell me, what would your top longevity tip be? Everything you've shared with us or maybe something you haven't, what's your top longevity tip? You would think it would be like organ meats, just eat organ meats. Um, and I think that I could easily say that. But if I really reflect on what what has been the thing that moves the needle the most for me personally and what I've experienced in my journey on this planet, I would have to say it's sleep. And I say that as a notorious night owl. You know, I think if you had talked to me two years ago, I would have, you know, we would have had this conversation at like 11 at night because I would be up. <laughs> but now I go to bed like 8.39. Me too. And it's amazing. It's amazing how different life looks when you get sleep. And I say that even as a parent, like we, you know, our kids are eight and four. And out of all the kids, we, you know, families we know and where we live, I think our kids go to bed the earliest to this day, even our eight-year-old. And I'm just like, yeah, because they're better people when they do. And I noticed that in myself. So I just believe good night's sleep. Here's why it's, it's so important for longevity, in my opinion. So one of the biggest issues we have with health is the choices we make, particularly around food. When I get a good night's sleep, I make better food choices. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So if it starts on the this, this simplest, most base level around health is what we choose to put in our mouth. And if I make better choices when I get sleep, then that's got to be the first marker for me because every choice I make is going to be based on how well I slept. I think that's so easy in, in our lives, particularly when there's so many factors against us, you know, where we have big food companies that are creating products that actually like feed our addictions and or play with our brain, you know, and our addictive qualities, like they're, they're actually manipulating us and make, manipulating our flavors. I think that when we have so many things against us, we really have to dig into the things we do have power over. And we have our choice. We do. No one is force feeding you to eat whatever it is you're eating and shaming yourself for eating. No one's doing that. No one is doing that to you. You are choosing to do it. Best way is to use your own skills around making the best choices you can make. And that's sleep for me. I feel like literally most, meaning a third of all of my guests say sleep, including the interview I did earlier today. He also (laughs) said sleep. So you're not alone there. (laughs) Tell us, I know you have a special promotion for our listeners to try your seasoning. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the site is eatpluck, E-A-T-P-L-U-C-K.com. And we have created a special 10% discount for your listeners. It's Dr. Gray 10 Uh, We sell pluck in pouches and then we sell it in tins. And we actually chose that because we really wanted to kind of not just be about helping people with their health, but also focusing on the planet. And I didn't see plastic uh, containers as an option. And so that meant glass. But to me, glass is heavy and it potentially would break. So meaning that I would have to put more shipping material around the glass to protect it. So we're now using these pouches. And what it means is we don't have to use 
we, we don't literally don't have any protectant, like any superfluous like protectant in the bag because the pouch is is can't break and it's uh, its own protectant. And then it's lighter, so there's less fossil fuels to ship it to us and for us to ship it to you. So I sure. felt like it was a win-win for right now. Sounds like it. Exciting. So I, I can't wait to try your seasoning. So to the listeners, I will post the link. You need to use a special link in the show notes to get the 10% off. Again, the code is Dr. Gray, D-R-G-R-A-Y, 10 for that 10% off. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was very interesting. I'm sure my husband's going to enjoy this episode a lot. So thank you for your your passion and really helping our listeners learn that it is easy. It can be easy to cook and eat well. And again, I look forward to trying your amazing seasoning. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of your day. You too. I certainly appreciate James's tips for how to cook for kids, give them choices, include them in the preparation, don't bring junk into the home, and teach kids to not waste from a very young age. I'm looking forward to trying Pluck Seasoning, and if you are too, be sure to use code DRGRAY10 for 10% off using the Pluck link included in the show notes. After our interview today, James gave me a quick recipe to try. Simply pop corn, then sprinkle olive oil and Pluck Seasoning, and enjoy. I'd love to hear your feedback on how you're incorporating Pluck Seasoning, which we now also retail at my practice, the Integrative Health and Hormone Clinic. Stop in and sample anytime. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thank you so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.